So we come today to looking at this letter to the Church of Philadelphia. And I want to briefly touch on the things that Jesus said about and to this church in the ancient city of Philadelphia. And then I want to move from there to look once again at the vital topic of love. Um, Not love for Jesus per se, because we looked at that previously, but we want to look at the vital topic of love for one another, love amongst ourselves. And so that's where we're headed. But first, let me just touch on uh, the things that Jesus said about the church and then the things that he said to this church in Philadelphia. First, he said, I have set before you an open door. I've set before you an open door. And this is, is a reference to the fact that this church is a church that's been given opportunities by Jesus, opportunities to uh, spread the gospel, opportunities to see uh, the work of the kingdom advanced. Now, this church, this church of Philadelphia here, this is, this is one of only two churches out of the seven that is entirely commended by the Lord. There's no correctional word here. There's no word of, of any kind of condemnation or judgment. It's, it's just a, a word of encouragement all the way. This was what you might call the faithful church. And so the faithful church has this open door given to them to advance the gospel. He says, secondly, you have a little strength. And so the church has a little strength. You know, there, there is a theology that has been around for a long, long, long time that uh, the church is going to ultimately take over the world, that the church is going to dominate all nations. And uh, it, it's actually sometimes referred to as dominion theology, but that's not really the biblical picture. The church is here in the world as a witness to Christ, Uh, The church isn't going to take over the world. Jesus is going to take over the world. He's going to come back literally himself, and he is going to set up the kingdom. But in the time uh, between now and then, he's given us a little strength. We have the strength to do the things that he's called us to do. And then thirdly, it says regarding the church here in Philadelphia, he says, you have kept my word and not denied my name. So this is uh, one of the key elements here in the, the commendation of Jesus for the church, that they've kept his word and how important it is for us to be people who keep the word of God congregationally, of course, as a church, but obviously personally as well. And as we keep God's word, then that will assure us that we will not deny his name. So those are the things that he said to the church, but then about the church, he says, because you have kept my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So here's a unique promise. Uh, For those who keep his word, they're going to be kept out of the great tribulation. So this shows us that the letter, although it obviously had uh, application to the historical church at the time, the application obviously goes far beyond that because Jesus is talking about the time of the end. He's talking about the great tribulation, which is yet to come. This did not happen 
in those days. There was no tribulation that came upon the whole world to test all of those who dwell on the face of the earth. That's a future event. And the promise is a promise of deliverance for those who keep his word. And then he also said to them that he is coming quickly. He is coming quickly. And so, of course, that's the, the whole point of Revelation, right, is to talk about the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. But uh, here, he, again, he's talking more specifically about coming for the church, coming to deliver the church out of the judgment that will come upon the world. So these are more or less the key points that are here in the letter to the Church of Philadelphia. Now, if you want the details of these important points, you have to come out Wednesday night. So you see, this is all a plot on my part uh, to get you to come out uh, on Wednesday night, because on Wednesday night, we're going to go into more detail. We're going to look at the entire third chapter. We're going to look at the other two churches in the third chapter. But I'm doing that because I want to take a, a bit of a different perspective on this letter to the Church of Philadelphia here today. And I want to look at it from the standpoint of the significance of the name of the church. Now, maybe you remember I said this a couple of times recently that these seven churches in their names, their graces, their defects, etc., cetera, uh, they comprehend everything found in the entire church as it then existed or ever would exist. Philadelphia. So we're going to focus on the name of the church because to some extent, the names of the churches, the cities that Jesus chose, the very, the very names of those cities, there was a message in the name to some extent. And I think particularly with this one, Philadelphia, of course, means brotherly love. And so this letter is addressed to the church in the city of brotherly love. I don't think that it would be inaccurate to say that the church itself is to be the city of brotherly love. I think that's what Jesus had in mind as he's establishing his church. Now, remember, the church is in the world, but it's, it's separate from the world. The church is a, is a separate kingdom. It's an alternative kingdom. And it is, the church is to be a place, a community within and among the nations that has distinct features about it, that has certain things about it that, that set it apart from everything else. And probably the, the key thing is love. The church is really to be like a city of brotherly love. Now, of course, if you went to the city of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania today, uh, you would find that it is far from the city of brotherly love. Uh, although that's what it's, uh, you know, was intended to be originally. But no, I'm talking about a city that, just imagine this for a moment in your mind, a city that really was the city of brotherly love, a city where, man, you walked in and you just automatically felt like, boy, there's something different here. Wow, this, there's, there's love in the air, you know, where, where it was tangible, 
Well, listen, that's, that's what the church is supposed to be. The church is a, is a different community. It's a different people. As a matter of fact, Peter tells us that the church is a, is a different nation. It's a holy nation. And so the church is to be that nation that you go into, and once you cross the, uh, the border into that nation, you sense that, oh, there's something different here. So that's, I think, clearly what Jesus intended. And the early Christians seem to understand this probably better than we do today. Listen to the words of a second century uh, Greek philosopher, Aristides. And now what he's doing is he, he's writing about what he observed in the church. He's not a Christian. He's somebody in the outside looking in at the church and listen to what he says. He says, they seek to persuade their servants and handmaids or children to become Christians by the love they have for them. And when they have become so, they call them without distinction brothers. They walk in all humility and kindness and they love one another. When they see a stranger, they bring him to their homes and rejoice over him as over a true brother, for they do not call brothers those who are after the flesh, but those who are in the spirit and in God. If there is among them a man that is poor and needy, and if they have not an abundance of necessities, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with the necessary food. Such is the law of the Christians and such is their conduct. So remember, this is an outsider. This is a person looking on. This is a person who's not part of the community, but they, as they look into it, they see, wow, there is something really special here. There's something different here. Now, what do people see looking on at the church today? Because obviously there are many people that are looking on at the church today. What do they see? Well, I, I'm afraid that they're not seeing a lot of the times uh, the same kind of thing that this writer saw. Unfortunately, today, quite often, they're seeing anything but love being manifested in the churches among uh, Christian people toward those are, that are on the outside. And unfortunately, this, this is a, a reality. People looking on today, they, in listening to some Christian leaders, they hear Christian leaders lamenting the increased numbers of foreign immigrants in, entering into the country. That's happening today. Christian leaders are speaking out on that sort of thing. Christian leaders suggesting that Muslims should not be allowed uh, to practice their religion in the United States. That's something that people are hearing. And as well, they hear Christians, many times leaders, speaking harshly and mercilessly about those with whom we morally, theologically, or politically disagree. And now, obviously, there's a, as we, as we even bring this up, we, there's always the factor, of course, of, of the media who is generally opposed to the church, uh, sort of uh, misrepresenting at times, or, uh, you know, it's a characterization uh, of 
caricaturization of you know what we really are. But the truth of the matter is, oftentimes these kinds of uh, unkind, unloving, uh, lack, lacking in compassion statements are being made. And it, it's a reality. It's not just a, an accusation that doesn't have a base in reality. There is, uh, there, there is a factual basis to it. And so it seems that in regard to the church being the city of brotherly love, we continue to fall short of what Jesus intended. And this is an area that we really, uh, we have to recognize and we have to realize that this for Jesus and his apostles after him, this is, this is top priority. Let me just give you uh, a number of quotes from Jesus and the apostles regarding love. And before I even read through these quotes, know this, this is the short list. I, I intentionally cut this list way down because of, of our time limitations, but uh, we could go on and on with this, but just let me give you a few examples. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, pray for them that spitefully use and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. You know, it's almost like we're almost hearing some of that sort of rhetoric today. We're almost hearing that kind of a thing where love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But Jesus said, no, don't do that. That's not what we are to do. Jesus went on to say, he said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus said, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Paul, in writing to the church in Rome, he said, owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Writing to the church in Thessalonica, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Peter said, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. And then the apostle John, beloved, let us not, or beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And again, like I said, the list goes on and on. We could go on with this, uh, quoting verse after verse. So my point is this, that, that love is a priority as far as Jesus is concerned. But tragically, so often throughout the history of the church, and, and I mean, throughout the long history of the church, this is an area where we have missed it. So practically, how does this work? Or how, how, do, how could we implement this? Well, it has to start amongst uh, ourselves. The first place it starts is loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. But quite often, we're, we're not even doing that. But that's where it must start. Now, to give you an example of how we, we fail in this so often, um, in 1900, the year 1900, that's 116 years ago, there were 1,600 different Christian denominations in the world. 1,600. Now, that, that's, that's quite a few, right? Everybody, they're all Christians, but they've, they've all got sort of, you know, different takes on things that have caused there to be 
these denominations that have developed. So that was 1900. Today, there are 45,000. 45,000 different denominations, uh, movements, networks. Now, listen, most denominations that exist are due to disputes among believers, usually over doctrine, mostly over non-essential issues, but frequently over personal conflict. You see, this is the problem. These divisions are generally a result of disputes. Now, of course, there are times when doctrinal disputes are necessary because we have to contend for the truth. But oftentimes, it's, it's non-essential issues. It's not the, the core doctrines of the faith that are um, at, at stake. But again, frequently, it's over, it's over personal conflict. Now, I'm quoting from an article in Christianity Today. The writer says this. He says, we share a common set of core beliefs but insist on meeting separately, often needlessly duplicating what would be more effective and efficiently achieved working together for the kingdom. So this whole thing of 45,000 different uh, denominations, if you will, or, or, or things similar to that, this is an indictment against the church. It's an indictment uh, speaking about the fact that we have failed in this area, and we have evidently forgotten that our most powerful and effective means of bearing witness to Christ is love for one another. See, this is huge. This is huge. Because Jesus said, this is the thing. Uh, above everything else, this is going to be the thing that is going to, to have the greatest impact if we love one another. So listen, I hope that there's no one here or, or even listening to me that has this mentality. But if you do, listen. If you think that you've been called to find fault with and criticize other believers or pastors or churches or ministries, you are wrong. You have not been called to do that. Now, some people, they feel that that's their calling in the body of Christ. Their calling is to find fault. Their calling is to criticize. And they will often say, well, you know, I'm just standing up for the truth. I'm just defending the truth. Now, like I said, we do need to contend for the faith. That's true. We do need to stand for truth. That is true. But we have to remember this. When we speak the truth, we must always speak the truth in love. And if we're not speaking the truth in love, you know what we end up being? A sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Nobody hears it. They're not listening to this. And so this is something that we have to really take seriously. You know, oftentimes I hear people speaking critically of other Christians, other pastors, other movements, and sometimes I'm just cringing. I'm thinking, wow, you know, where, where did you ever get the idea <coughs> that as a child of God, you could speak like that about somebody who is a, a brother or sister in Christ. I mean, this is just uh, something that <coughs> we should not uh, allow. It should not happen among us. Now, 
I, I'm not standing up here saying that I'm completely innocent in regard to this because I haven't been. There are times over the years and, and thankfully most, mostly in the past where um, I have done that very thing. I've, I've spoken out harshly and unlovingly and, and you know, God's convicted me as the years have gone by. Um, it's funny, sometimes today, <coughs> I might hear my, uh, a message on the radio, and although the content of what I'm saying, I, I, I agree with it, I, I still hold that position, sometimes I'm cringing at the tone that I'm hearing in my own voice. <laughs> It's coming across the radio. I'm just like, oh gosh, I can't believe. Uh, years ago, uh, when I was living in London, um, I, I've been on the radio in London for 20 years now. So we have a regular radio broadcast in London that goes on every, you know, five days a week in London. And um, years ago, I, I, I preached a message from John chapter eight, just speaking about Jesus being the light of the world. And in that message, and I, and I preached it before I moved to London. I preached it in the context of life here in Southern California. <coughs> and and in, the, in the message, you know, I, I talked about Jesus being the light of the world. I talked about the darkness of Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and all, all the way along, you know. And um, of course, when you start broadcasting in an international city like London, you're going to have all kinds of people, you know, from all different backgrounds. And anyway, I got a lot of letters from people who were not real happy with a lot of the things I said. And of course, back in those days, I thought, well, you know, they just can't take the truth and uh, they're wrong and I'm right. But I did take the time to listen to the message myself. And as I listened to it, I cringed. I thought, ah, oh, they were right. I said, you know, I changed, I changed, <laughs> jokingly, I changed the title of the message um, to a xenophobic looks at John chapter eight. You know what a xenophobic is? A xenophobic is a person who thinks their own culture is the greatest culture in the world and every, everybody else is just, you know, out to lunch. So, I mean, you know, I jokingly <laughs> changed the name in my mind to that, but I thought, you know, that, that's what I'm talking about. We have to be careful about how we say things. Yes, we have to speak the truth. We can't stop speaking the truth. But when we speak the truth, we must speak it from a heart of love. And if we're truly speaking it from a heart of love, you know what? The tone is going to indicate that. It's going to come across. You're going to get it. Sometimes I, still today, you know, sometimes I hear people preaching and they're insisting that they love the people they're addressing, but the tone says they don't. <laughs> so... This is where we have to grow. We have to grow. We are to love one another, even those that we disagree with in the body of Christ. And we need to make sure that when we are contending, when we are speaking the truth, we are doing it in love. So love for, the, for fellow Christians. Secondly, love for our fellow man. We're to, we're to love people. We're to love people because remember, people are created in the image of God. And because every single human being is created in the image of God, they have dignity 
and they deserve uh, a certain amount of respect and consideration simply because of that connection created in God's image. We are to love our fellow man. C.S. Lewis put it so profoundly uh, in something that he wrote that was entitled No Ordinary Men. Let me read it to you. He said, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is, in, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Every person is to be shown an amount of respect and love because they are creatures made in the image of God. And of course, for us though, that even goes further because they're people for whom Christ died. And isn't it true that so often uh, we forget that? But you know, the best way to not forget that as often is to remember that we are people for whom Christ died. And were it not for the grace of God, we would be right there probably in that same place with that person that we are despising, with that person that we are rejecting or that person that we're refusing to give the time of day to. You know something that struck me one time, and it honestly has helped me have a better perspective with certain people. You know, I mean, let's face it, there are obviously people in the world that's very, they're very hard to love. But the reality is God loves them. So what we're talking about here is God giving us ability. But one time, this just struck me. I, I think it was the Lord. I was looking at this person, a very uh, obnoxious person and a you know, person that you kind of just wanted to get as far away from rather than have any kind of encounter with them. And it suddenly struck me like a, like a bolt out of heaven, this person was one time somebody's baby. Somebody's baby. Just like those babies that we dedicated up here today. And, and, I, and I just had this thought in my mind like, wow, what happened to that precious little innocent child that turned him in? No, seriously, that turned him into this. But it was a moment that helped me have a compassion for the person, because something must have happened in their life that got them from that precious little baby to where they were at that moment. So, you know, sometimes it's, it's these kinds of things that we need to think about. So love for our fellow Christians, love for our fellow man, 
But then thirdly, love for the lost. Love for the lost. Jim Cimbala, the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle in Brooklyn, New York, he wrote this. He said, the world we live in is antagonistic to our beliefs about Jesus Christ. Our Christian values are rejected out of hand. But instead of engaging this world and proclaiming the gospel of God's love with an accompanying manifestation of God's power, as we find in the Bible, the church is reacting by making harsh and condemning statements about the world and its people, forgetting that they are not our enemy, but rather our mission field. We can't forget that. And again, we can't forget that we were one time there. We were one time there. And it wasn't the anger or the, the hostility that brought you to faith. Remember, James tells us so rightfully, truthfully, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You know, our anger at people, the sinners in the culture, that's not going to produce the righteousness of God. It's not our anger that's going to turn them from their sin to Jesus. It's the love of God that's going to do that. You see, that's the truth. But sometimes we forget that, don't we? And we get so angry at these people who don't hold to our values. But listen, Jesus did not call us to go into the world and preach values. He called us to go preach the gospel. And values only come from a transformation in the heart. So we have to be careful. We don't want to end up as Symbolist says here, we don't want to end up thinking that the very ones that we're called to reach are the enemy. They're not the enemy. There is an enemy, though, and that's the devil who holds them captive. And we can't forget that. They're dupes of the devil. They're captive by him. You know, Paul, in writing to Titus, he said an interesting thing, and he's talking in the context of rulers and kings and things like that. And you know what he said? He said, speak evil of no man. For we ourselves were at one time deceived and deceiving others. But when the kindness and the mercy of God toward us in Christ appeared, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. You know, how often do we feel uh, a freedom even to speak evil of people, leaders, politicians, our president. I mean, how many times have we as Christians, because we don't like his policies, perhaps, we don't like his worldview, how many times have we just freely felt uh, that we could just say anything we wanted about him? Paul said, don't do that. Paul didn't, you know, you can't read through the epistles of the New Testament and find any one of the apostles criticizing the politicians of the day. And listen, you think our politicians are corrupt? Well, they are, most of them. But um, the Roman politicians were, you know, probably a little bit further down the road of corruption than, than ours are even. So, but, but there wasn't that kind of, you know, personal indignation coming. And, and think of Paul when he stood before, uh, he stood before, um, Festus, he stood before Felix, he stood before Agrippa, and you look at the way he conducted himself, he was very respectful. 
And he took it as an opportunity not to criticize them personally or their policies, but really to uh, address them concerning the gospel of Christ. And so love for the lost. But this, ta- this does take us all the way back around to where we were before. And it takes us back around to what we looked at previously, the whole issue of, of loving Jesus first. Because you know, if I have come to a place where I no longer have love for others, I can safely conclude I must not be in that place with Christ where I'm loving him first. Because if I was, I would have love because Jesus, of course, has love for them. So if I'm, if I'm doing what Jesus said to do, love him first, then his love is going to fill my heart and his love is going to overflow to others. Now, do you remember, maybe some of you remember, I, I remember this. I remember one of the things that happened to me as a, as a new Christian, I remember just suddenly having a love for people that I previously had not had. There was something there. I knew that there was a change for a number of reasons, but that was one of them. It's like, wow, I, I have a whole different take on this person or this type of person now. And I found myself having uh, an unexplainable love from a human standpoint, but obviously I knew what it was. It was, wow, this is the love of God in my life now, directing itself toward these other people. And maybe you can relate to that as well. Maybe you can identify with that. But the question is, have we moved away from that? Have we lost that? And so if we've lost that, then that is an indicator that we have left that place that Jesus referred to as our first love. And we have got to get back to that place because listen, this is, this is the key. The church is to be the city of brotherly love. The church is to be the one place on the planet where people can come and feel like, man, I am on a different planet. I'm in a different world. As they, as they cross, you know, my prayer is as, as people even just, seriously, I, I do pray this, as people just step their foot on the grounds here, that they would just know there's something different. It's like crossing into a, uh, over a city limits line or crossing over a border. You know, back in the days when the, the Soviet Union was in power and you had the separation of Eastern Europe and Western Europe and so forth, man, it was like two completely different worlds. You crossed the border from Eastern into Western Europe and it was like you crossed the border from hell into heaven. That's the kind of difference it was. But you know, that's what the church ought to be like as well. A place where you, when you cross over into the city limits or to the national borders, you just think, wow, there's something here. There's something different. You know, two quick stories, and we'll wrap it up. When I was pastoring in London, we had a church in London that met in a, in a school in the heart of London, in central London. And, um, you know, life in London is, is, it's a tough life. It's a big city with millions and millions of people. It's, you know, there's much of it that is uh, likened to an inner city kind of a situation. And uh, life, life is tough. And there's not a whole lot of love that you sense as you're there. You know, one of the things that uh, the, the tube is notorious for in London, the tube is, or the, the subway, the trains, you know, that go in and out, is how nobody ever talks to anybody. 
They just sit and sort of read their paper or just stare out the window or whatever. Um, but anyway, uh, a friend of mine who was a Londoner and had grown up you know, in that real rough kind of environment there, he would tell me at a certain point, his name was Charlie Collins, and he's since gone to be with the Lord, but he said to me, he said, you know, Brian, he said, my favorite moment of the week is when I drive into the car park of the church on Sunday morning. And he said, it's like I just come to a different world. And he said, and I, I just so love being here. Uh, and, you know, you come to church at nine in the morning and wouldn't leave till seven or eight o'clock at night because they just wanted to soak it in, just be in that environment, be in that atmosphere of love. And, you know, that's how it ought to be, that we would be the city of brotherly love. This past week, we had the, a, a beautiful opportunity. Over the years, as we travel, especially to London and back, um, I just used uh, Air New Zealand as our carrier um, for the most part in going back and forth from London. And as you, you know, you take the same flights over and over again, you get to meet some of the crew. And anyway, we got to meet and be friends with uh, one of the stewardesses on the crew. And she's a German girl who actually lives in London near where I used to live. And so we had, you know, certain things in common. So we got to talking and uh, find, uh, come to find out that although they fly in and out of LAX, during their time here, the few days that they're here, they actually stay in Costa Mesa, right down the street. So as we were having a conversation one time, all of this came out and Scott and I were talking to her and we said, hey, well, you know, you got to come and visit us sometime at our church and gave her some, you know, gospel um, literature and, and all of this. So anyway, this has been, you know, probably two, three years, maybe four years that we've been having this conversation with her as we see her every occasionally. Well, anyway, I got an email from her a couple weeks ago, said, hey, I'm going to be in town. I'd love to come by and see your church. And so she did. She came on Friday and uh, she happens to be a Buddhist. And we just had a fantastic time. We just took her around and introduced her to a bunch of people and all of that. Here's my point. At the end of the, the time when she was ready to, to go back to her hotel, she said, you know, this is a beautiful community. I really feel a lot of love here. And I thought, amen. That's what we want to see. That's what we want to hear. That's, that's what Jesus had in mind, undoubtedly, when he talked about his church. The city of brotherly love, the one place on earth. You know, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. You know, how, how could it ever be that there would be racism in the church? How could that ever happen? It's so contrary to the whole picture of the gospel and the kingdom. It's just so contrary. How could it ever be? Well, whatever it has been in the past, we have to make sure that we don't perpetuate that. We have to stay in that place where we recognize that every tribe, every tongue, every nation, those are the people. Jesus loves everyone. Everyone is invited to come and be part of his kingdom, of his family, of this new community. Everybody's invited to become a citizen of the city of brotherly love, where Jesus is Lord, where Jesus is King.
And so as we are there ourselves already, most of us, let's make sure that we are doing the thing that he said we are to do, loving one another, because by this, all will know that we are his disciples. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to truly be Philadelphians. Lord, as a congregation, that we would truly be uh, the church of brotherly love. And Lord, that we personally would love one another. And Lord, that we would love our fellow man. Lord, that we would love the lost. And Lord, we know that this doesn't happen by us conjuring up or digging down deep to find some extra source of love in our hearts. Lord, we know that this can only happen as the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, would you do that for us? Would you pour out your spirit in our hearts and in doing so, pour out your love upon us that we might pour it out upon others as well? Lord, thank you for your love for us, your love that sought us, your love that bought us, your love that brought us into your fold. And Lord, may we never forget that what you did for us, you want to do for everyone. And there's not a single human being in the world that you didn't die for. There's not a single person that you don't want in your kingdom. And so Lord, help us never to assume that there's someone out there that you're done with or it's too late for them, but to always hold out hope that your love can reach them. And Lord, use us in whatever way to extend that love to others, we pray. And we pray it in your name, amen.